Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 165 you're listening to. I guess today is mastering badass Dave Collins, known for his work with Sting, Metallica, Soundgarden, D'Angelo, Bruce Springsteen, and Madonna, as well as many major film soundtracks. He mastered Soundgarden's Super Unknown, one of my favorite records. Maybe you've heard of it. Hmm? Uh, Dave is in Pasadena, California, and he and I met originally at an AES, I want to say two years ago. Maybe it was three. Anyways, I was at AES. I was hanging out with JJ Blair, and JJ introduced us. And then I ran into Dave recently at the NAM show during the event that I mentioned in a past podcast where Michael Beinhorn was taking the song Black Hole Sun and deconstructing it and talking about it. And Dave was in the audience, of course. And as I just mentioned, Dave mastered it. So, yeah. So Dave Collins coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Going to thank everybody for taking me up on my offer to give me some guest suggestions via the new guest suggestion form, if you will. Uh, that's over at workingclassaudio.com. Yeah, that's just a basic Google form that you can fill out. And if you want to hear a particular guest uh, or hear me interview a particular guest, that is, uh, head on over there and check that out. Don't nominate yourself, though. Try to nominate people that uh, you're fond of, that uh, whose work you think is really cool. Ideally, somebody still working in the trenches. You know, I like interviewing people who have great stories, uh, but at the same time, it's really helpful if I can get somebody who's actually working today, not to dismiss the knowledge that comes with somebody who's been at it for a long time, who's semi-retired, but ideally, you know, hearing modern day stories of, uh, you know, the trials and tribulations of recording professionals is really uh, enjoyable for a lot of people. So there it is. Yeah. Workingclassaudio.com is where you can find that. Just go to the guest suggestion form and fill it out. And I will go to that form every time I need a new guest. And I will um, generally send you an email if I can to just acknowledge it and say, hey, great. I've reached out to the person you suggested and we'll see what happens. So there it is. The guest just suggestion form. That's, that's, that's difficult to say. As I've mentioned numerous times about my new Zaor furniture, I'm going to mention it again only because uh, I am working on a... Uh, uh, what do you call it? A makeover video. I don't know. You know, maybe it's because my wife and I watch so much HGTV. We watch all those home shows and rehab your home or, you know, redo your home type shows. So of course I decided to do a video. So I'm working on that. Once again, man, video pain in the ass. I, you know, there's, there's a reason I stick to uh, audio. I am just not a strong video person. So it's taken me a little while, but I'll get it out there and I'll let you know when that happens. Uh, but it will show you the state of my studio before uh, Zaor Furniture and the state afterwards. You could call it uh, the Ikea state and the Zaor state. The Zaor state is much better than the Ikea state, I will tell you that. So uh, I'll, I'll inform you. So, okay, brace yourself. I'm going to do a little bit of a financial rant here, and I'm going to kind of kick everybody in the ass a bit. Um, if you are not saving for retirement, 
you really need to rethink this, my friends, especially all you freelancers. And, you know, unless you've got a day job or you've got some 401k matching situation, I don't. So I have to invest myself to make sure that, you know, I can keep pace with my life in the future. Now, I don't live a lavish lifestyle. So I'm taking as much as I can and putting it away. And uh, I've talked about this particular service over the course of the life of the podcast. It's called Betterment. And if you're like me and you're intimidated in any way by uh, a brokerage service that you need to call and you need to talk to a financial advisor or anything like that, this is for you. It's robo-investing. Let's put it this way. If you're the person that goes to the self-checkout at the grocery store because you don't want to deal with the person at the checkout, then this is exactly for you. You know, not that I don't like people, but I just like to move at my own pace. So what it is, is you download the app, you attach it to your bank account, and you start investing in a retirement account. And you ideally would auto-invest every year, or not every year, sorry, every month or every time you get paid. You can set the pace, you can control it, but the idea is, is it's on an app, on your phone, which is in your pocket, which you're looking at all the time. We all know we are. And it, it's a constant reminder of what you have or what you don't have and the trajectory of where your money is going to be at for the future. <laughs> I know that sounds like I'm just a, a whole lot of, of thought process that you don't want to get into, but you got to do it because you just never know. I know that we all think we're going to you know, live to the end of time and be super wonderful audio professionals like Eddie Kramer or Al Schmidt or Jeff Emmerich, but the possibility exists that some of us are not going to be in audio in the future, or we're just not going to have enough work to sustain ourselves. So save now. I'm telling my kids to save now. And they're looking at me laughing like, are you, are you kidding me? Are you crazy old man? We have video games that we want to spend our money on. So don't spend all your money on equipment now. Save some money for the future. Check it out. If you go to workingclassaudio.com, I'm going to go to there now. Where do I have it? Okay. It's, if you look at WCA bonus content, it's all the way to the right. And if you go down one level, it'll say WCA recommends You'll get to a page where it's a list of things that I recommend, services and gear and books and movies. Go down to finances. You'll see Betterment. Click on that. You'll get six months free, plus you'll get a 30-day free trial to check it out. I'm digging it. It's working for me. I'm saving some money, and I feel a lot better about that end of my life. Also, an addendum to that would be right below that, and I'm seeing, I'm thinking of this now because I'm looking at it. If, uh, if you're on the working class audio site and you are looking at what I'm telling you to look at, go and click on mint.com. If you don't have a way to really track your money really well, mint.com is free. Yes. It's bloated with ads and suggestions of things that you do. If you can get past that, it's a great thing. And you know, I'm not one who ever used to balance my checkbook, but this kind of balances it for you, or at least it keeps track of everything. And then by the end of the year, you can export a great list of all the pieces of gear you've bought, all the trips to NAM and AES you took, all the flights, all the Ubers and Lyfts, all of that crap. You can export those expenses out, hand it to an accountant and say, hey, this is what I spent my money on this year. And here's a list of my income and help me figure this out rather than just a big box of receipts that you have no clue if it's from this year, last year, or 10 years ago, this is a little more organized way. Okay. Rant is over. Everybody breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> Damn. Do that stuff. 
Get your shit together with the money thing, guys, gals. Really, just do it. All right. So many of you were probably wondering if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you spent time at workingclassaudio.com, you're probably thinking, what's the deal? Why can't I leave uh, comments on the website anymore? And I kind of had to shut it down a bit because there was some serious spam happening, which is inevitable. Actually, if you go to Working Class Audio, I'm starting to put under the the listing, like for example, last show for Steve Albini, if you scroll to the bottom of the, the post there, there's a little black box that says leave a review. If you click on that, that'll take you on over to uh, uh, iTunes and it'll prompt you to open the iTunes store where you can uh, leave a review for working class audio, which would be really, really cool if you could do that. Those are a great way to just show your love for the podcast. If you have something nice to say, of course do it. If you have something awful to say, steer clear of it. Don't go anywhere near that iTunes store with your your nasty comments. Stay away. So there's that. Uh, a couple of sponsor things I want to mention, of course. You know, we do sponsor the Audio Life subforum on gearslets.com. So if you haven't visited that, you've heard me talk about it, maybe this is the time you need to go check it out. If you like the the, the topics that we cover here on Working Class Audio, that's a forum-based version of what we talk about. Uh, and you can interact with the audio community and talk about you know work-life balance, health things, money things, all those things, and have those discussions uh, in a written format or in a forum format. So check that out at gearslets.com. Uh, also want to remind you, our friends over at Universal Audio are continuing the promotion where if you buy any of the Apollo products, you get a satellite, uh, you know, which will add to your DSP free with your purchase. And that ends in March. So make sure and get on that. I know we talked about that all the end of last year and I thought it was going to end. I was wrong. It didn't end. It still continues. So the opportunity still exists. More DSP, more DSP. So there it is. Yeah. Universal Audio. Go to uaudio.com to check that out. All right, that's it. Let's get to it. Enough rambling. Let's chat with Dave Collins here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, it's always, it's funny too, and I, when I get mastering engineers on, you know, there's there's people who do mastering and recording, and then there's just like mastering engineers who only do mastering, and the, and the concept of a microphone such a foreign concept. You know, it's funny. You can tell I'm a mastering guy only because I don't own a microphone or a mic preamp, and I had to go get one off Amazon to uh, be able to record this other than just on the little MacBook uh, mic. But, uh, you know, I, I think the average mastering engineer probably does not have a mic or a microphone, and I certainly don't, but uh, now I do. What was the, the tipping point that got you into doing audio professionally? You know, uh, like with many things, it was a total coincidence. It was my next-door neighbor. And I used to go and hang out in his garage on the weekends, and uh, he had a lot of audio equipment. I was, uh, you know, always involved in some type of either, you know, guitar playing or having a fancy home stereo. And I just started talking to him, and he uh, worked for 20th Century Fox. He was the chief engineer on the scoring stage of 20th Century Fox. And I said, boy, you know, I would love to uh, try to get a job working in audio. I'd always been fascinated with recording studios and things like that. And I ended up at uh, you know, 1983 being just kind of a, a runner and, and general, you know, setting up of uh, headphones and making sure everybody had their uh, 
stuff on the scoring stage. I later went on to do some electronics work as well for them. And that turned into a job in the very, very early days of digital audio of compact disc, uh, working for uh, a guy called Armin Steiner and uh, Bruce Botnick, who had purchased all of the original Sony digital audio gear. And I went on a rentals, taking it around to all the mastering studios in Hollywood because none of the studios had bought any of this gear at the time. In fact, people didn't even know if it was a passing fad or not. So uh, Bruce and Armin had bought all of the, basically every product that Sony Pro Audio made for digital audio. And I would take it around to uh, to rentals and mastering studios where they would play the master tape and I would record the uh, uh, mastered output for CD. And it turns out that's the greatest introduction you could have if you want to be a mastering engineer because I went to every top studio in Hollywood. So I saw every buddy who was anybody in, in mastering and was able to really get a feel for the art, the craft, and the science as well because I was a electronics engineer prior to getting involved in all this uh, in the audio uh, side and it was fun to see you know people like uh, Doug Sachs who had, had built completely custom systems and and had a uh, really remarkable uh, I think outlook both on business sound technology it's like anything else it was a complete coincidence that this guy called Jim Walker happened to live next door you, you never know how life is going to work out, but it was, uh, uh, at the end of the day, a complete coincidence. Going around to all these different mastering houses, did you sense a common theme amongst them in terms of whether it was a, a culture or, or a particular equipment thing? What was the common denominator amongst them that you recall? The common denominator in 83 was they all hated digital. That was the one thing that uh, they had in common was they felt that it was uh, a substantial step down from what they were used to. Even though I later got into modifying and improving digital systems, they were all completely box stock and were, you know, built to a, a professional standard, but it wasn't, in a lot of cases, the quality that people were used to. The other common denominator that I found, um, and it was a, a difference as much as a similarity, is that uh, the top studios were building custom equipment. When you went to Bernie Grumman's or you went to the Mastering Lab, these guys had built everything to their own standard. They uh, uh, had very few uh, stock items, actually. And hmm. uh, as I later became friends with, Doug Sachs was, was really astonished at the, uh, at the level that they had gone to in optimizing every single bit of the, of the chain. So, you know, from a, a standpoint of things that were in common, everybody in mastering, it's a very specialized job. So you're, you're able to make your own world, so to speak. Uh, most people that buy a uh, SSL console, they're, they're you know, pretty much operating in stock. Uh, but in mastering, everybody had uh, custom monitors, for instance. It's very rare to go to a mastering studio and find a stock studio monitors in there. Everyone had put together a custom system. Uh, so I thought what was interesting to me was, A, in the uh, little bit of recording engineering that I'd done, I didn't really have the patience for it. I didn't, I didn't have the mindset to hear that song 300 times and, and to punch in the guitar solo for two hours and things like that. I'd, I'd done a bit of it, but it just was not, uh, uh, it, it, just didn't, it just didn't fit with my personality, I think. And in seeing mastering, it did because you're, you know, working on, uh, you know, uh, maybe a record a day or something like that. 
but it required a different sort of uh, 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 mind, and I, and I think it was way better suited to um, just my uh, my mentality. And I'm glad it exists. Fast forward. At what point did you? involve yourself as a mastering engineer where you actually hung out a sign and said i'm a mastering engineer that was in 1988 the uh, lead up to this was in the uh, mid 80s uh, bruce botnick decided to set up a mastering studio in his company which had, uh, as i mentioned prior to that just been doing rentals and a uh, company was called digital magnetics and he attracted uh, a guy called Joe Gastward to come work with him. Uh, Joe was working at CBS at the time. We put together at the time a, I think for the for the era, quite sophisticated uh, mastering studio, and it attracted Joe to come to Digital Magnetics and work on uh, his CBS projects there. And Joe was the first mastering guy that I actually assisted. Sat with him every day. We did, uh, you know, I don't know, hundreds of of projects there. Um, uh, a lot of them I'm extremely proud of today, and, and I think I think hold up very well today. I would say Joe was the guy that I really learned the craft from because this was um, all analog tape at the time. You know, you you have to know a lot of things with analog. When you when you pick up a analog master tape and look at the tape box and try to glean as much information as you can about what's written on the box, the format, and things like that. But a lot of times there's other things that you, you wouldn't know unless you'd seen hundreds of masters that, that, that like Joe had. And it's quite an interesting thing in a reissue because um, in those days, first of all, you weren't concerned with apparent level. So you were concerned with getting the best transfer you could. And we set up a very uh, minimalist signal path, really a, a good, good quality um, EQ. I was uh, working on the A to D converters at that time, so having some some degree of customization. But Joe is the first guy that I, I really learned what mastering is, what it is to sit down with a record and communicate the song, communicate the music the best you can. And while uh, you know the equipment is obviously an important part, what's really important is your taste. People, after all, are coming to you and mastering for your taste. They're coming to you for your your take on the uh, musical presentation and and, and how do you communicate the song? I, I still say to this day that if there's anything that I've done that's allowed me to work successfully for uh, you know 30 plus years, it's being a music fan. I mean, every, everybody, uh, you know, when you I just went to the NAMM show and when you look at the NAMM show, the only thing everyone's got in common is they love music and whatever style it is. Everyone is there for a love of music. And I was fortunate to grow up in a house that was full of music. My dad was an audiophile in the 50s, built his own custom system. So I'd, I'd, I'd really been immersed in, in that uh, uh, sort of musical culture uh, throughout my life. In working with Joe, I learned what are the technical requirements of mastering, but also to get a feel for what the uh, uh, aesthetic is and how... A mastering engineer listens in kind of a, a funny way because you listen to the whole thing at once. You know, a recording engineer comes in and says, oh, I can't believe that snare reverb. I would never put that snare reverb on there. But that, that's not how you listen to mastering at all. It's kind of a cliche, but you listen holistically to the entire song. How does it strike you? How does it make you feel? What technical aspects are interfering with the uh, communication of the song? What can be done to bring the listener closer to the music. And I think that was something that, that early on I learned 
from Joe that, uh, you know, it's more than understanding what uh, two kilohertz sounds like. It's what are the different approaches you take when, when you hear a track that's muddy, what do you do? Well, do you cut bottom? Do you add top? Do you take out 250 hertz, whatever? Well, I don't know, but there's all different types of approaches one can take. We were doing all of the CBS records reissue work, so it was every kind of music, but it was a, a great education because A, I learned about all the technical requirements of analog tape, which is somewhat of a lost art today, I suppose. But at the time, it was absolutely vital to be able to play the tape back correctly, get as much music as you could off the tape before you rely on EQ or you know additional processing. Did that for uh, roughly five years, and then um, was recruited uh, by a guy called Shelly Yakis at A&M uh, Studios, who... They had taken over the recording studios, completely revamped it, had put together a, a very impressive, and to this day under uh, Jim Henson, it's still a very impressive uh, uh, studio and, and very successful. There was mastering, and they wanted to kind of revamp it and uh, kind of re- reorganize it, so to speak. Uh, Shelley interviewed me a, a couple times over there, and I uh, started working in a room that was actually a converted office that uh, had uh, previously been uh, uh, the studio manager, Paul Sloman's office. And, and it's, it's funny to, to think of the records that I did, some of them uh, quite successful that were, were just done in a converted office. I think I've got some photos on my Facebook page of, of the original studio. And at that point, we were doing a lot of musical editing. I had one of the first um, hard disk sonic solutions editing systems. So I was doing a huge amount of, you know, single edits and working out, you know, how to, how to take a six-minute song and make it three minutes long. Uh, I worked a lot with the A&R department at A&M at the time and was um, really just kind of inching my way into doing uh, a creative mastering. And that is really where it began for me in 1988. In the early days of mastering, I mean, you've, you've been at this a while now, but in, in those early days when you are signing off on something to send to a client. Was there any early trepidation of, oh boy, I hope I did them justice. I hope it sounds better than what they sent to me. And Sure, and uh, sometimes, they, sometimes they hated it. I think the nature of anything new, and certainly as I was beginning to learn how all the tools worked, I think you tend to overdo it. I, went, I, I go back, and I won't name any names, but I can go back and listen to a, a, a record today that has got 50 times too much EQ on it. But so it goes. I mean, it's kind of like the first time you find a, you get a, a reverb in your studio, everything's got too much reverb on it. So, uh, <laughs> it, you know, I, I think it was kind of a, a matter of learning how to get get control of all the gear, understand that the, the equipment is, is a means to an end, not be overwhelmed by it. Some of the newer things we were doing there, you know, we, we had a recordable CD when it was new. So mm-hmm. you actually could make a ref for the client, you know, prior to that, it was a cassette. There was a, you know, complete crapshoot how it's going to be reproduced. And, you know, you could make a recordable CD uh, for $50, I will add, and um, uh, be able to go play it at home, maybe play it in your car and see what it sounded like. But uh, getting people to sign off on it and find that what you're doing is better than their mix. Uh, Nico Bolas was very influential uh, in, in in the early days of my career because he would bring his dat tapes to the studio and we would intercut takes and do um, you know various uh, editorial things and then he would go over to uh, master uh, not with me and there was a time when he got his uh, master back 
And he brought it up to the room and he said, Dave, will you listen to this? And I said, okay, we listened to it. And then he said, well, play the flat master that we, we made yesterday. I played that. And he said, you know, this sounds worse. The master sounds worse. And I said, well, uh, we let me take a crack at it. And uh, I took a crack at it and he liked mine better. And I think that was kind of the beginning of uh, getting a little bit you know, more exposure as a creative mastering engineer. There is no correct answer to what the uh, uh, record is supposed to sound like. I, I will always give my take on it. And there's a interplay and interaction with the client in a lot of cases about you know, what, what direction the, the, the project should take. But one thing that I certainly learned is that less is more. And really getting to know your, your tools and being able to use the console intuitively, not really worry so much about uh, what the numbers look like. And you say, oh, gee, that looks like a funny setting on the compressor. Well, I don't care. Does it sound better in? And it, it took a while to really get to the point where when I hear something for the first time, I can pretty rapidly approach the sound I hear in my head. If you hear something that sounds a bit off, I always have a sound in my head that I'm, I'm looking for. And, and I think as I've done it more, you, you certainly can get there faster. And it used to take me a long time to master a record. It takes me less time now, and I'm getting better results. And I think the biggest tool next to, uh, to my ears is having a studio that you trust. What I've got today, I will put up against any studio in the world. I think it's an absolutely uh, amazing result that we've uh, achieved with uh, Northward Acoustics. And uh, it's, um, it's very impressive. It's interesting to me with regards to mastering and clients. Clients, there's a lot of people out there that to this day explain mastering as, oh, it's this black magic thing they do. I hate that. And, and, and uh, mastering engineers uh, uh, will, will sometimes encourage that uh, perception, which I think is kind of stupid. Mastering studios, like the people that seem to be perceived as professional uh, or, or legit or good at what they do are not necessarily judged on their work, but sometimes are largely judged on the room, the expense of their speakers, mm-hmm. and uh, how their mastering room literally looks. People will, you know, can be very easily swayed with a Sterling console filled with a selection of high-end five to fifteen thousand uh, dollar compressors and EQs and or limiters and EQs. Probably over the years, you've seen a lot of bullshit. You've seen a lot of impressive things as well. So, what's been your experience of of observing others? Well, of course, not. I don't. I don't expect you to name names, but I'm curious about that idea. You know, there's a, a bit of a dog and pony show associated with. It, certainly, I mean, I, I uh, recently saw a picture of another studio. And uh, the console looks like uh, Vintage King. It looks, I, I've never seen so much gear. I, I wouldn't know where to start with, with nine EQs. I, I look at uh, Doug Sachs, who had a 50 uh, year career with uh, two EQs and a limiter. I uh, probably have less gear now than I used to. In fact, I know I have less gear now than I used to. Getting comfortable with it is what's important. The perception of course, is also important. Having something that looks good and feels good and it's comfortable, I think both for me and the client is power, paramount. When you, when you walk in and you can sit down, relax, it's very important. Getting a sound that I relate to in the studio is what's important. I don't necessarily expect a client to come in and sit down and listen to the monitors and hear it in the way that I do. I work in that room every day. I, I sit in the 
same chair in the same place every day. It, it's as repeatable as possible. It, it is not like a recording engineer that goes to numerous different studios and has to adapt to, to what he's hearing and maybe his speakers sound different on this console than they did at the last. It's the most consistent possible uh, situation in mastering. So having a room that looks nice, and I would say we've worked hard to make the, uh, the new room sound perfect to begin with, but I think, I think look nice and be, and be comfortable. Sometimes uh, I've seen rooms, and, and I may have even been guilty of this in the past, uh, that were uh, somewhat over-decorated, overdone. Too high-tech, I think kind of, it, I know it puts me off, and I, I imagine it puts uh, people off as well. It's got to look a little bit funky. It's got to be comfortable. What, what we did in the, in the latest room was to, was to have the acoustician make a console. So the, the, the console used is actually manufactured by Northwood Acoustics. And it is, is made to be super ergonomic, but it also uh, interacts with the, with the room. It's, it, it, it's, it's made to, to complement the uh, acoustics of the room at the same time. So, uh, you know, it, 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 is, it is important, I think, sometimes, uh, you know, to, to go back to what you said earlier, if you just are filling rack spaces with gear that you're not even going to use, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, <laughs> it's certainly, certainly done, but uh, I will happily put a uh, ventilated black rack panel there if it's something that I'm not, not going to use, you know. Dave Collins here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause for a sec. I do want to remind you about something I mentioned in the last episode uh, with regards to Audio-Technica. If you are a fan of the M50 headphones and you want a different color other than black, this is, your, this is another chance to get a new limited edition version. This is, uh, of course, the ATH-M50XBB. That is a blue-black version of the popular ATH-M50X. You know, it's got all the same features, the detachable headphone cable and, and, of course, the robust build of those headphones. Those things last a long time. Well-built, sound great, uh, but this time they're in blue and black. They just, they look pretty damn cool, and I really want a pair. So check it out. I'll include a link. You can go over there and check them out for yourself. And, uh, yeah, pick up another pair of headphones in a different color this time other than black. Imagine that. Blue-black at that. So let's get back to it. Dave Collins here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You've come up in the days of, well, I'll use this term reluctantly, um, proper mastering houses. We're obviously in a day and age where mixing engineers are certainly working in the box. What about mastering engineers working in the box? How do you feel about that? I uh, do a lot of projects that are... Uh all digital in the box. I have no problem with it. I'm working on a, uh, a movie soundtrack right now, and it sounds fantastic. Sounds perfect. It's done by the top engineers in the top studio from the top composer. It doesn't need to come back to analog. I, I uh, would find you know a, a fair percentage of things, including some rock records, that uh, there really isn't a, a great benefit. And, and I've got a super. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely proud of the uh, of analog chain I put together and I can go from uh, digital to analog to digital again and not really feel like I'm losing much. But on a lot of projects, you know, I take the case of this movie score, it doesn't need to go through a tube compressor, okay? It's going to need a dB at 14K. There really isn't any compelling reason to, to go back to, to analog for it. I think back, I was just telling the story the other day, 
to the first rock record that I worked on a long time ago. And it came in so loud. I'd never heard a master this loud. And I, it's a record I'm proud of the sound of, actually. Uh, but uh, we'd never heard anything so loud come off the, the mix. And we ran it through the regular chain, which was converting it back to analog running through the console. And uh, it came out worse. It came out kind of mushy because of the incredible density that was on the original mix. And we said, well, okay, we're going to just pull these two cables out and connect them together and go all digital and run it through this uh, Yamaha DMC 1000 digital console I had at the time. And uh, it was it was kind of a, a, a awakening where we had never really considered uh, the merits. And, uh, you know, I had very primitive stuff by, by today's standards for uh, EQ and compression back then. But it was when we went, and it was there was no box at the time. It was we were going from one storage medium to the other, but uh, you know the, uh, uh, the 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 possibilities today are, are great. And uh, you know, I'd say maybe oh, well, I don't know, maybe twenty percent of records are I'm, I'm doing all digital link today. Can you see a future where that becomes a, a much higher percentage? Oh, who knows? Of course, I mean, you know, analogs had a hundred years to to optimize its its uh, quality, and and you know, digital processing is is new. I, I you know, I would say it's only in the last few years that even digital EQ works in a in a kind of predictable way. Digital compression, I've got a couple things that I I think are okay, but none of them really are exciting to me in the way that a, a good analog compressor would be. You know, I think there's some stuff like DSing that actually works better in digital in some cases. But if I was to say the answer is certainly yes, it will it will improve. It, you know, it's improved a lot. The 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 curve I would I would say has really uh, uh, steepened in terms of uh, quality of plugins. I think people are learning a lot more about uh, uh, how to emulate properly, um, but yeah, I, I would say for sure there's going to be more going to be more all digital processes. Hmm. Yeah. The barrier for entry into mastering prior to the in the box possibilities, equipment was always in increments of five thousand dollars. The box, you know, a box would be five or ten or fifteen or twenty, and then the speakers always seem to carry, you know, five to six figure dollar amounts. Do you think that that is aside from the in the box discussion? Do you think that that is is a, a requirement that people spend in that arena of of money, or or is it is it possible to put together good mastering setups for far less? You absolutely can do it for far less. Uh, you know, the most important thing is the monitoring and acoustics. That is, uh, it's not only is it the most important. I think it's somewhat the the least appreciated part. Um, that a good pair of speakers in a lousy room is going to be lousy. And that um, getting the monitoring and the acoustics sorted before you worry about anything else is number one. But yeah, I, I would say, uh, assuming you had good speakers and a good acoustical environment, you can set up a perfectly respectable mastering workstation pretty inexpensively nowadays. Uh, I mean, I don't know what a copy of uh, you know a DMG Equilibrium costs or something like that, a few hundred dollars. And that's uh, a great digital EQ. And there are many offerings for other uh, dynamic processing that that is it, it's certainly affordable i mean you're right it used to be very expensive to uh to get into mastering the speakers i have at work the atc speakers they're really expensive it's the most i've ever spent 
on speakers, but it's also the best sound I've ever heard. And it is a tool that allows you to do a better job. So, you know, to your question about the cost of a mastering workstation for, a, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars, you could be you could be on the air, assuming you knew what you were hearing at the end of the day. Uh, if you're going to only, you know, work on headphones or work in a, you know, kind of compromised acoustical environment, it may take you longer to achieve your goal. You may never really be 100% uh, confident or happy with what you're doing, but yeah, it's, it's uh, certainly cheaper than ever to get good results. And what about the workload today is, uh, let's, let's just compare to say 15 years ago in terms of where people's budgets are at. Are you able to still charge what you did 15 years ago or more? How's that changed? Depends on the client. What happened, and I think mastering, for whatever reason, kind of bypassed some of the overall downturn in the music business. I, I, I haven't really noticed a substantial difference in either my income or the uh, workload over, over the years. The overhead in mastering studios is much lower. You don't have a $20,000 a month lease payment on the console and stuff like that. What happened is it, is it changed. So as I, around probably 2000 and to maybe 2001, sort of saw uh, the writing on the wall, what I did was to lower my operating costs, use the same gear, same operation that I had always had, but just lower, you know, tighten, tighten the operating uh, cost belt. And it worked. And also to target independent music makers, because the major labels either were reducing the number of releases or cutting their budget. But I just put a uh, emphasis on the uh, independent uh, music maker. And uh, not only that, the international market, which uh, nowadays occupies probably a third of my uh, work is uh, people out of the U.S. And in doing that, my uh, business thrived. I, I've, I've had really nothing but, uh, nothing but success in, in having, a, having a good rate for independent music makers, giving them the same attention to detail, same gear, same uh, aesthetic as, as anybody would get. But uh, having a rate for a guy that is self-financed that he can afford. And I, I think that's really paid dividends. And then going again to uh, people in other countries is, has really been, uh, it's, it's been fun because you get to hear an unbelievable variety of music. The downside of it is, in many cases, don't even speak to the person on the phone. It's completely by email. You know, you, you, uh, he sends me the file on the internet. We talk via email on the, uh, uh, you know, regarding the uh, project. He, uh, you know, he, he wires you the money. So there's, there's a, a lot less of a, a you know, personal uh, connection like you, you, you might have had. But in terms of expanding opportunities, it's, it's been great. It's certainly, it's certainly worked for me. How do you get that that international business? Where does that emanate from? It can come from a lot of areas. Uh, in many cases, it's just referrals from other other happy clients. I did a little bit of advertising years ago, and I, I'm never really sure that it it even paid for itself, frankly. But you know, keeping a uh, keeping some type of exposure on the internet, whether it's on uh, forums or uh, Facebook or whatever, I think is 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 helpful. And uh, I've sort of been known, at least to some degree, as a guy who would uh, answer your tech question if you had some some question or even and not even strictly uh, uh, technical but just about 
mastering or you know business or or listening or any of these things and um i've had a lot of people contact me that say hey you know i read your response on some forum somewhere and and uh, i i never really understood the topic before and you know thank you for your explanation and here i'd like to send you my uh single to see what you would do with it and that turns into an album project turns into a long-term client i've got a lot of people that i've gone on to you know i've done 10 records for that uh, started out as as a you know a person on an internet forum somewhere it i could see where it would be easy if like you do a few successful records and then your profile gets built up and the work starts coming in at a at a particular level it'd be very easy to have you know like a qc person a, uh, a person who answers the phone a manager do you have any of that or is it just you? No, I've got a bookkeeper and an accountant and uh, my wife helps me with all manner of other things, but I haven't uh, I haven't done that. Uh, I, I did for a while have a QC person, but the problem with the problem with it is 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 this. It's one of the most important jobs in the whole thing because if you miss a glitch, it's a bad situation. But you end up giving it to a uh beginner, basically. I mean, my first, one of my first jobs was listening to masters and headphones for, for glitches, but you have to really put a lot of confidence to somebody that they're not going to, you know, be uh, on uh, Facebook while they're listening to the master and, and miss a dropout or something somewhere. So I found that doing it all myself, there's no one to blame. If there's a mistake, I am able to, uh, get all the work done in a, uh, in a, in an efficient way. And if I have to spend a couple hours listening to masters, uh, it's fine. Then, you know, you can put your feet up and kind of, uh, maybe, uh, get the monitors at a, at a lower level and just kind of, uh, put your, put your mind into, uh, into QC mode. But, you know, I suppose it would be great to have somebody that feels the phone calls and I get, you know, 20 emails a day that I have to go through, but you just get into a routine of, um, uh, my theory is just to handle everything as it comes in and not to let it build up. And, uh, you know, I, I do all the production masters and uh, invoicing on Fridays and, uh, you know, just set aside that day to um, get all the all the uh, production masters done and uh, get the billing out. You know, like I said, it'd be nice to have someone that could, could uh, uh, do some of those things, but just I'm a one-man operation. And uh, like I said, my wife does help me with a lot of, uh, a lot of other uh, logistical things and, uh, you know, providing good advice and uh, things like that. Along with managing one's day-to-day of handling clients, answering emails, following up on invoicing, uh, there's all this extra layer of uh, participation in social media to keep your name out there. And, and of course, there's you know website maintenance and all this extra stuff. What's your work-life balance like for you? Do you try to carve out time where it's just like, this is Dave time and I'm not going to talk to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the whole work-life balance is uh, important. I uh, would never, uh, you know, uh, operate my studio out of a spare bedroom or, or a, you know, live work loft sort of situation. I, I want the studio to be completely separate from where I live. I want the delineation of, you know, work and personal to be, uh, to be clear. I uh, understand a lot of people can, uh, you know, uh, operate out of their house or whatever, but that's just, uh, it's just, it's just not me. And uh, another thing that, uh, you know, I would add to that is you've got to be feeling it when you, when you sit down to work on a record, there were times when, it, and it took me a bit of time to, to learn this just about myself, that there were times that I was not into it and I was not doing the best job that I could do. 
Mm. Well, now I know that, and uh, you know I learned this a long time ago that if you're if you're not if you're not feeling it, then you go out and take a walk around the block or walk the dog or go do something, go do something else. I fortunately do live quite close to the studio, so it, it's easy to leave and go uh, just you know relax and and uh, get your mind clear and come back because if you know if you're not in the right mindset, at least for me personally, uh, I know I'm not doing the work that I can be that I'm capable of. And uh, mm-hmm. I think also there's a certain amount of hours a day that you really can pay full attention. And so, you know, um, if you're, and different people have different tolerance, I guess you could say for it. But I know that when I'm starting to feel a little bit tired and a little a little bit to, to where I'm not giving it my full attention, I'm really sensitive to that today. And I just knock off for a while and come back. And inevitably, when you come back, fresh and it doesn't have to be a long break you come back and you're like ah now i am giving it uh, what i know i'm capable of so in terms of live work balance i think it's easy enough to do but it's easy enough in the early days to overdo and i know when i first went on my own and you don't know is you know is the phone ever going to ring again that you maybe take on too much work or you get overloaded or you have a client that's unhappy because you didn't deliver the master you know over the time frame that you said you were going to do it's a mistake you only make a couple times because the, the number one thing is to have a happy client that comes back What do you do when you get work in from people? You hear it and you go, oh man, I don't want my name attached with this. This doesn't, this doesn't sound good. Or even if, even if you make it sparkle and just make it magical in your heart of hearts, you know, you don't want your name attached to it. Is, does that ever occur? No, never. Okay. Full stop. Uh, you, you, you do the best job that you can. You know, while I have heard other people, uh, say that, oh, you know, I, I wouldn't want my name on this. I, I don't subscribe to that at all. And it is, after all, someone's work. It is someone's uh, creative output. And I make no judgment whatsoever based on, on that. I make it sound the best I can, whatever that takes, and I send it to them and, and see what they think. But that's not something that I subscribe to. There is no uh, Alan Smithy for mastering as far as I'm concerned. And that said, do you get a lot of mixes to master that you feel are maybe on an amateur level that you that you question the, the the quality of? You know, I hear mixes of all quality. And I think to turn the question slightly on its head, I hear mixes that sound ridiculously good that are done on, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the the funny thing is you'll, you'll hear the mix. It sounds fantastic. And I'll uh, maybe have a question about the uh, you know, what version or whatever like that. And uh, I'll, I'll call the client. And when he answers the phone, you you say, you know, you know can, can you put your dad on? Because the, guy, the kid sounds like he's not old enough to drive and he's outputting stuff that sounds phenomenal, <laughs> like better than the million dollar studio. So yeah, you know, you hear stuff that, that, that needs help, of course. You know, my job is to, is to do what it takes to, you know, as I said earlier, to communicate the song, to communicate the musical message the best I can. But, uh, you know, sometimes the, the, the thing that is, is interesting is sometimes the record will sound a, a little weird, but it, it, that's what they're going for. So you've got to figure out, is it because the monitoring is weird or is that actually the aesthetic quality that they're looking for in the record and correcting it, quote unquote, correcting it, might actually send the record in a direction that the, the artist did not want. This was intentional. It might be what I call internally consistent, where they are 
looking for a particular sound and they want to create a particular mood and that mood might be that it uh, sounds like it's got no high end or it sounds it's a you know a punk rock record that's super aggressive if you were trying to warm up the punk rock record it's the wrong direction you've got to understand they want that song to say a few sonically yeah to really you know a lot of times make assumptions that oh well you know it's uh it, it's a it, it's an amateur sound because it it, it sounds uh, so and so it's not always correct and i was thinking about this the other day that why it is i don't know but it seems as though people's monitoring has gotten better over the last 10 years it seems like it's less common to get something in that has um like say unbelievable amounts of sub frequencies that that obviously the the artist never heard at home and you and you play it on a full range system and it's like acoustic guitar and vocal but it's got some, you know full of 40 hertz that's that they never heard and then you play it on the full range system and it you know feels like an earthquake it seems like that is less common than it used to be and i don't know uh why exactly but uh i think maybe speakers have gotten better people have gotten more attuned to um understanding that acoustical treatment uh, in the in the room is important but it seems like things have actually gotten better uh than a decade ago and i wonder if that has anything to do with the huge amount of educational material out there in the world whether it's free on youtube or paid via pure mix or mix with the masters uh, add to that unfortunately there's a equal amount of misinformation and, and really hilariously <laughs> uh, inept youtube videos as well but you know the mix of the masters things how are you going to go wrong with uh al schmidt or andrew sheps yeah. or, or you know ryan hewitt is people that that are their experiences is, is amazing is outrageous and also their their uh, communication skills and their ability to teach is also wonderful. I think uh, knowing something uh, is one thing and being able to communicate it is another. Yeah, I, I, the, the exact reason, I don't know. But uh, mm. I was just thinking to myself the other day that it's it's much rarer than it used to be to get something that's really out of whack where uh, it, it was, and it was not an aesthetic uh, uh, thing that, that was was being communicated. It was lousy monitoring or, you know, whatever. And you really had to make uh, a lot of huge corrective um, processing moves. So, you know, from that point of view, things have gotten better. Do you ever have billing issues with clients where you where you have to spend an extraordinary amount of time chasing money down? Sometimes. It's, it's happened a couple times. Uh, really, for the most part, no. Uh, uh, you know, there have been, I would say, maybe three people who stiffed me completely over the years that I, you know, know who they are. I know where they are. You write it off as a bad debt against tax and uh, move on. But, you know, most people just want to get their record mastered. I, I, I have, uh, I've always been um, surprised by people who will like only send the first verse in the chorus to the guy before he pays or something like that, or put a beep in it or a dropout or something like that. I think that's nonsense. You, you, you just you have to trust people. They're trying to get their record mastered. Uh, you know, uh, the, the whole the whole operation of the the business should be based on the music first. The billing comes last. I don't want to deposit. I'm not interested in anything, but getting the, the client happy with the sound. Let's let's worry about that. The money part comes later. The, the people are not trying to to screw over mastering engineers or maybe now they'll start after they hear this but I, i've had <laughs> I, i've i've had so few people uh 
uh, not pay it insignificantly. Sounds for the most part, it's been a good career uh, in terms of smooth sailing with clients. And I'm sure there's been, you know, a couple bumps in the road here and there, but all in all, it sounds really, really nice to be honest with you. Well, it's a great job. It's, it's, um, uh, getting paid to listen to music. I mean, how bad can it be? Right. It's, uh, you know, after all the, um, having a job you love, it's fantastic and, and, uh, and rare. I mean, I think, I don't think most people uh, like their jobs. I uh, always relate the story that I was out taking a walk around my old studio in Hollywood and I was talking to another mastering engineer on the phone and I'm just walking around in the, in the city and he's complaining about the client that he's working with. And I said, ah, you know, these, these, this guy that I'm working with now wants, you know, wants it to be brighter than I think. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to please him. And we're, we're kind of complaining about, uh, you know, how sometimes you, you have a, a, a creative disagreement with the client and I'm going across the street and there's a guy inside a manhole uh, with with his head poking out of the manhole and and they're feeding him the airline down inside the manhole and I said you know what we got to shut up right now about complaining about our jobs because I'm watching a guy in the sewer okay getting a who knows what he's doing down there but I know he's going in the sewer and we're complaining about a guy who wants a db more 10k on the record that I think is right so we just got to knock it off because we're spoiled we have jobs we love we're doing something that uh is 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 fun and i'm making a a a good living being paid to listen to music so no complaining (laughs) i think that's a great perspective sometimes we get so wrapped up in in some of the you know like you say and let me just add that working in the sewer is a respectable job too. Okay, there's nothing wrong with 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 working in the sewer or, or, or digging ditches or whatever. It's just that complaining about sitting in an air conditioned room, listening to music, and being paid well for it. Uh, you know how much real complaining are you are you allowed to do? I, I totally agree with you, and I think that once again, great. That's a great perspective that I think sometimes we need to realize whether you're mixing or mastering or tracking, whatever. What's what's your advice for those who hear this and think, wow, I really want to do that. I want to be a mastering engineer. Well, uh, the advice is, is um, listen. The advice is learn to listen. Learn to listen critically. Learn to listen as a fan. I think the one of the greatest skills any mastering engineer can have is to remain a fan of all styles of music and... Uh, Last night we were listening to Spotify and I discovered some new artist completely by accident. You, you, you have to remain hungry for new sounds and new styles and uh, understand what's on the charts and, and become aware, stay aware of what's going on. I mean, the number one skill is listening. It's not uh, equalization or it's not the latest, greatest piece of gear. The number one skill is to learn to listen as the audience will listen. No one cares how you got the result that you get in mastering. All they care is what it sounds like. I, I uh, always kind of comment on people that are so caught up in the spectrum analyzer or the, how the waveform looks or all this. No one cares about that. No one ever hears 3D color spectrum analyzer. It's meaningless. All the people care about is the result that you get. And the result that you get is really based on listening to it as the 
listener is going to hear it. How does that song communicate to you? How does is the does the vocal sound important? Is the rhythm section in perspective to the track? And that perspective, depending on the style, might be you know, super bassy in some styles, a little bit thin uh, uh, perceptively in, in other styles, but understanding how the audience listens. That's the number one skill. Listening is, is the skill. And uh, unfortunately, what's happened is uh, gear has, has become uh, overstated in its importance. And when you first contacted me about this podcast, and you said, you know, we're not going to talk a lot about gear. And I thought, great, because... I can talk about gear 25 hours a day, but the importance of the gear is, has been tremendously uh, overstated, I think. And getting a room that you're comfortable in and a set of speakers that, that you relate to and that translate to the outside world and getting your sensitivity to, to music dialed in, that's what's important. That's the number one skill. I think that's great advice, especially with regards to the gear. Uh, and I've brought this up in past episodes where, you know, other people in other industries don't obsess like we do in our industry about gear. Uh, they look for the tools that do the job and get them to work. And then it seems to be the end of it. Yeah, but there's uh, been the, the manufacturers have very successfully driven this uh, fear, uncertainty and doubt that if I only had that new compressor, I would be producing world-class level level work. If I only had nine EQs, I would have an EQ for every possibility. And um, while that might work for some people, I don't subscribe to it at all. I just uh, saw a picture of studio the other day that I think has five different pairs of monitors that you can switch between. And, and I thought, boy, you know, I, what you need is one good pair of monitors that you trust. You don't need you don't need ten different speakers. I, I have not you know taken something out and listened to it in the car in ten years. Uh, it, 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 if you if you have a speaker that you know, you don't need five different speakers. You know I, I realize that the manufacturer it's in their interest to convince people that it's the you need the next greatest thing and you need this new box and there's no certainly no uh, no shame in that but. I think what's happened is people have concentrated so much on the gear. And as I mentioned, I think to the detriment of quality so much uh, on staring at the monitor and looking at the waveform and looking at all the fancy colors. I, I uh, uh, was just recently asked to write an article for a magazine, and it's going to be basically about you know all the time you spend looking at the analyzer you're not really listening you're not really paying attention every 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 you know you've only got so much attention that you can give to it and uh if you're spending a lot of time looking at the the the, the bouncing uh spectrum analyzer i maintain you're really not doing the best listening job that you can possibly do and that these are all the, the visual distraction is uh is not uh, in my view not not a positive uh, contribution well, it's been great to chat with you. I love your perspective and uh, I love your your musicality that comes across to me, even because some mastering engineers can really appear to be so myopic, in my opinion, that I really like your perspective. It, it, it appeals to me. So it, it is. It's about music. We're all here. Like I said earlier, we're all here for their love of music, a love of good sound. That's it. We're out of time. But I, I, I definitely want to thank you, Dave. It's it's a it's a real treat to talk to you. And I, uh, I hope to spend more time talking in person in the future. I'm going to try to make it a, a little more of a habit to get to LA outside of the normal 
trade show type events. And All right. Well, I'd love to have you at the studio if you have time permits. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks again. I uh, had a good time doing it, and I appreciate being uh, asked to participate. Absolutely. Thank you for participating. So until then, till we see each other in person, have a, have a great week, and uh, thank you again. All right. All the best to you, Matt. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Dave Collins here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I don't know about you, but this doesn't get old for me. Just talking to these folks in the industry and finding out their thoughts on things is just, it's a constant, you know, thrill for me to get new information from everybody. So I hope it continues for you. Spread the word, let everybody know. And uh, if you can, visit our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Lawton Audio, and Audio Technica. And uh, that's it. We're out of time. So you know how it goes. We got to thank everybody. Want to start with Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And of course, we want to thank Dave for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you for listening. Spread the word. Visit us on social media. And as I always say, until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.